my God, it's that time again. It's podcast number 94 of Dr. Stu's podcast. That's number 94. All right, I'm Dr. Stu with my co-host, Kim Durden. Welcome and thanks for listening. Uh, You can catch us on iTunes. Uh, Give us five stars on iTunes or you can find us at drstuespodcast.com where all our podcasts are archived except for the ones that are busted, of course. Renee, pay attention. (laughs) All right, you could tweet us at uh, hashtag Dr. Stu's podcast. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, You can like us on Facebook and uh, you can find me and more information about me at birthinginstincts.com. Or, and you can email me anything that uh, comments you might have about the show or questions that you want me to answer or maybe possibly bring up on the podcast at askdrstew at gmail.com. Uh, Kimmy, do you have a uh, website or anything My yet? website is KimberlyDurden.com. That's very original. <laughs> you know, I was just <laughs> like, what should I call this? You- I'm just going to use my name, Kimberly Durden, D-U-R-D-I-N.com. Um, and I just updated some things on my website today, so definitely go check it out. Yeah, like what did you update? I put some more pictures on there from births that I've been attending. Um, we have this wonderful birth photographer slash doula slash student midwife, um, Rebecca Corsi, so I'm sending her a shout out. A Wondered Life is her website. Um, is that dot com? Dot com, <laughs> yes, dot com, and she's amazing, and she goes to birth, a lot of births with uh, with me and with my preceptor, Heather Swartz, C- uh, CPM. Um, and it's so great having her there because she's an amazing doula. She's an amazing person, but also she is an amazing photographer. So I kind of think it's a real win-win when she we get to go to births together because we always end up having like these fabulous pictures. They're like museum quality pictures. And I was really excited to kind of upload them on, to my website today. Well, I will check it out. Please do. It's on my to-do you're list. You're looking good, Stu. What have you been up to? I mean, I know what you've been up to, but I'm wondering how you're uh, able to look so, be so chipper and so full of life. It's probably because I'm wearing dark clothes, so you can't tell how, how chubby I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I always wear like a dark t-shirt because it's harder to see. I the, have a dark t-shirt on you know, too, I think for when, the same reason. When you, when you put as many miles on the car as I do, I mean, right. we just had a birth this recently in Temecula. And yes. It's a two-hour drive yep. in no traffic, and yeah. uh, we went... We went to the birth, then we came home, then the next day we did our postpartum and came home. Right. And then I have uh, twins doing Fontana, and then I was in Ventura this morning, and I was up in Santa Barbara last week. And so I'm putting all these miles on the car. So, you know, n- naturally, you, you don't hate me for this, but I, I'm a fast food sort of guy. Ugh. And, uh, you know, I try to do the chicken, all right? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, try you try. I try to, to do, do the chicken. chicken. I don't do the French it's fries. It's hard though. to do a salad when you're driving. It, that's, that's the, the problem. problem. That is the problem. Yeah. Siri can't eat for me. I mean, Siri can text <laughs> for me, but she can't eat for me. I like I like Siri. To, Siri, will you eat this uh, this chicken salad sandwich, please? No, she won't do that for me. So it's, it's also okay to just stop and and you know take a half an hour to eat lunch. But I know it's hard because the kind of schedule we have, we don't always have the. Oh, I'm I'm running from here that. to there constantly. Uh, like even t- uh, even today, I was in. You know, I have somebody that's threatening labor in Fontana, and uh, I, I took the risk because things had petered out this morning to drive to Ventura for a home visit, and then I went to Thousand Oaks to my old office where I've no longer I'm, I'm no longer working in Thousand Oaks because I've gotten too busy. I've consolidated all the Century City. Oh, great! But I went there to have a meeting with uh, Dr. Maureen, my my uh, associate who shared space with me there. Great! It's her office, and I shared space with her. Actually, I should say it that way. Yep. And then uh, I came here to do the uh, podcast with you. And of course, that's, you know, that's, that's driving from downtown LA to Ventura, then back to Thousand Oaks, then to 
Where are we now? I hope you have Tuhunga good music that you listen to or a good podcast or something. No, I get aggravated. I listen to either talk radio or when I get really aggravated, then I turn it to sports talk radio, which is <laughs> less aggravating. But I want to say something that people who don't live in Southern California sometimes don't understand oh, yeah. the gravity of our, you know, the, the, the large area that encompasses our region. And it really is... It's it's a lot. I mean, I think someone sometimes when you have when I have friends coming in from out of town and they're like, yeah, I'm going to go to Pasadena. Then I'm going to go to Malibu and I'm going to go to, you know, San Diego all in one day. I'm like, no, you're not. You're not going to do that. Not in Southern California. Yeah, no. Pick one thing and stick to that. So and you have to you have to juggle it based on traffic. Totally. I mean, Totally. Like sometimes we'll do a home visit at nine o'clock at night because exactly. we don't want to deal with, with the traffic, traffic which right. is kind of cool when you're doing home births because a lot of babies do come at night and early morning hours. We find almost ourselves all, traveling. Almost, almost yeah. always. Yeah. And it, it's it's so beautiful. It's like driving around in a totally different city because it's there's no traffic and you, you know, you get home. Yeah. So when quickly. I first came to Los Angeles in, in 1982. Um, there were a lot of days during even the daytime. I mean, there was a lot, the, there was there was smog in 1982. Oh, the air was a lot dirtier in 1982 than it is now. But the roads were a lot. Less. I mean, there was there were two, three, four million people less here wow. in 1982 than yep. there are now. Yep. So, uh, but thanks for that compliment. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Uh, I got a haircut. <laughs> and um, you're gonna have to get a treadmill in your car. Like, is there's a way that you can drive and be like on the treadmill at the same time? Like, I don't know. I think that's probably how about impossible. getting one of those little like ten stimulators that just makes my muscles go, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. You know, the lazy man uh, like lay on the sofa with the remote control and the little thing. You know, you saw the movie Wally. Did you ever see the movie Wally? Don't ask me about movies oh, or TV. Right. I don't have time. I yeah, don't Wally. The the oh, the people had evolved to a point where they never got out of a chair and they did everything in the chair and they were all fat and roly poly. <laughs> And no, that you know, I, again, I'm 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 working on it. I uh, I am trying to be more active. Uh, I do try to go to the gym in the morning before I go down. And you know, half the time I go down there, the, my favorite apparatus is being used. So I end up not <laughs> it's staying. A good very excuse. Long. Yeah. Well, they only have one stationary bike, and that's the best thing because I have back and knee issues, and it comes from years of abuse and falling off a horse. And also, you know, you know, you can relate to this, the, yes. the strange positions that sometimes yes. we find ourselves in at bursts for, for leaning over things and it really isn't good for your back. No, it isn't. It yeah. really isn't. And uh, one of our, and one of our favorite doulas in LA, I know just recently had knee surgery. I'm not going to say her name, but cause I don't want to put her out, her completely out there like that. But I think about how challenging that must have been just leading up to it as a doula, you're really you know, that's part of the work that we do as doulas is that we're really making it easy for the mom to do what she wants to do. And that requires us to get in these like ridiculous pretzely twister type positions. It does take a toll on our bodies. It's part of the sacrifice that we make to to provide care for for our birthing families. So having said that, then, mm -hmm. I mean, I know a little bit about your history, but most of our listeners don't. So if it, if it's so horrible on your body, <laughs> why, why am I doing why, it? Why are you doing it at this particular point of your life too? Because you, you know, see the gray hairs. You see. Yeah, them. I mean, yes. I'm not. You know, you're still unbelievably vibrant, but you know, you're over thirty. <laughs> yeah, twenty years over thirty. Yeah. yeah, and you have. A, and you, how old is your youngest? My youngest will be five next month. So yeah, so you were you were doing and it, my oldest. Is you were 25. doing the nasty a little bit late in life there. I, I still do it. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was doing birthing. 
I right. think she was born at And what do you home. have, like 12 children? I have half a dozen, <laughs> Stu, not a dozen, just half a dozen. Get it straight. So you know that I have six children. Right, and you had five V-backs. And I have five V-backs. I know, I love that. And my, yeah, my first was a cesarean delivery. My beautiful daughter, Yanni, she's uh, 25 years old. Yeah, you're a grandmother. And I'm grandma. She right, has a son, uh, Judah, baby. who is three and a half, and he's awesome. He was born at home. And uh, I was happy to be there. I played the grandmother role. I didn't, I didn't play the doula or midwife role. I, I made a decision as it, as it to should be the be. grandmother. I think it's a smart role to play. Yes, it was wonderful. People always ask me if I if I helped deliver my daughter, and I said no. I didn't no, realize I your daughter had children. No, I helped deliver. Oh, your daughter, your own yeah, daughter. I was yeah, going to say she's yeah, a little young. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. No, no kids. De- no, yet. I helped deliver my daughter, and I said no, no. I wanted to be at the dad end of the table. Yeah. Exactly. Right. I mean, exactly. we had C sections, but but uh, and my and my wife had uh, was a repeat C section, wow. and that's what she wanted, and that was fine. And that's before I thought like a, a midwife. This was you know 19 years ago, and uh, people ask me that all the time. It's like I know that some doctors do deliver their own, but I would be feel terrible if something went wrong, and you don't want that responsibility. Plus, I wanted the experience at least once in my life, exactly, of being on the dad end of the table I and the miracle that. of seeing you know your your child being born. Absolutely, right? Yeah. So I do. I have a bunch of kids and. Uh, I got into, I've been involved with women and childbirth and, and breastfeeding for quite some time. My oldest daughter, as I said, was born in 1991. And, and at the time, I was not working with women and children and breastfeeding and all that. I was just having my own kid, my own experience. I had a completely different life uh, prior to birthing her. I was working in fashion design. I was working in um, model and model and uh, actors management and doing all sorts of things. I lived in New York City at the time, and really, if you had told me that my life would have transitioned into working with women and children, I, I would have thought you were crazy, absolutely crazy. There was, I didn't even know. There, there was no way I could have predicted where at that time what I would be doing right now. But I will say that after having my oldest daughter, um, I did have the care of the midwives with with my oldest daughter, but. She was breech upon delivery, and uh, so I transferred into the care of OBs, and I had a C-section that I was very surprised about. Um, kind of didn't even really pay attention to what a C-section was until the, the day that I was told I would have one. Um, and, and I struggled um, not so much with having a C-section. I mean, I kind of didn't have it, wasn't given another option. Uh, she was a breech, breech and uh, I was told that... Uh, I was just going to have a C-section, so there you go, and I did. And I, I don't say I won't say that I had anger or I was frustrated about it. I mean, but I was definitely uh, not prepared for uh, feeling like I was hit by a Mack truck. Um, by you know the feeling, the experience of having major surgery. Um, I wasn't prepared for the recovery period. I wasn't prepared for breastfeeding. I wasn't prepared for any of that stuff. And I, looking back, I think the first uh, month or two, I, I probably suffered a bit of depression. I definitely had some confusion. I was trying to kind of integrate, you know, what had just happened. Um, Do you think that was related to the C-section? I think it was related to being a first-time mother. I think it. Well, that's a good point because I think that 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 the transition to being a mom, from not being a mom to being a mom, is a huge transition that can have many emotions and feelings surrounding it, including sadness, including mourning your old life, including, you know, confusion and unsuredness and, and you know, not really w- wondering when is your life going to get back to quote unquote normal. I mean, that's a part of it. Yes. But I think um, 
just physically um, having a major surgery um, on top of all the transitions and not expecting to have that major surgery had another profound impact on me that I wasn't expecting. And ultimately, uh, through my experience and as I began to heal, by the way, at that time, I also said I'm only going to have one child. After that experience, I was like, there is no way I'm doing this again. So hell no, it's not going to happen. Um, but after I, as I recovered and as I was able to find community, um, namely through things like a La Leche League meeting in Brooklyn, which became very important to my um, coming out and discovering you know, mother community um, and getting support in that way, I realized that if I was to have another child that I did not want to go back to the hospital. I mean, I just really had a strong mm-hmm. sense that that was not where I wanted to be. I, I, I kind of was really concerned that I would end up having a repeat cesarean section. And so I sought ways to, to not have it. How many years uh, between your first and second? My first and second, I had uh, three, three years. Three years. Three years. Okay. And then and the second one, you, ha- you obviously had a VBAC. I mean, a VBAC, but you, you said you had it at home? Well, my experience was that um, I definitely wanted to use midwives again. I had a good mm-hmm. experience um, with the midwives I was working with. They were hospital-based midwives, oh, but okay. I had a good experience with them, and I wanted to use midwives again. So I thought maybe I can avoid the hospital the second time around by going to a birth center. And at the time, uh, that was of 94 in New York City, uh, the few birth centers that were available, I believe there was only one that was local to me, somewhat local to me, was not allowed. They were not allowed to take women who had had prior surgery. And, and that's th- still practical actually fairly common the american association of birth centers really if you want to be an accredited birth center you're not supposed to be taking v-backs breaches or twins uh, i i think it, it's probably a, a political thing or a administrative thing to keep the you know to try to have really 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 good outcomes but it sort of denies women um a lot of potential options but right. so it wasn't unusual it's not unusual then it's not unusual now well and i think that um you know, absolutely, like birth centers still, there weren't a lot of them, and they, you know, wanted to play by the rules and had to kind of follow the rules. And, and as far as I understood from the midwives I had talked to at this particular birth center, they said, we would love to have you have your baby here. But the doctors who back us up, our backup doctors say that, no, we cannot take uh, women who are uh, trying for VBAC. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that, because when you were talking about this, and the fact that I'm thinking that you had five VBACs, and then I think about my experiences up in Santa Barbara County, with Cottage Hospital up there and how they have a policy of no VBAC and they're very adamant about it. And um, the midwives who work up in the home birth world or the birthing center up in Santa Barbara, you know, they won't do a VBAC. They won't support a VBAC, not because they don't believe in it, but because, because they don't want to piss off exactly. their, their precarious relationship, which is really good right now with the backup. But it is interesting to me that if had you been non a, a, you know, a woman who didn't educate herself, who had been living in Santa Barbara, you would have had six cesareans. I would have had, well, and I probably wouldn't have had six children. And and, <laughs> and you may very well have had uh, major complications well, I from mean, one of those I, things. D- honestly, you know, I have complications for my first. And so I probably would have, um, you know, it's it's interesting. So what, had, what happened to me was just wonderful... Um, situation where talking to some friends about my situation and feeling like I do not want to go back to the hospital, but I can't go to this birthing center. Oh my God, what am I going to do? I mean, I was really stressing me out. And then a friend of mine said to me, well, how, you know, why don't you interview a home birth midwife? And that totally was not on my radar screen. I mean, I didn't even, I kind of didn't even know what that meant. No, I think, and I'm not sure 
where there was much going on in home birthing in 94. I was a backup physician here in Southern California at that time. And, and you know, there, there was going on, but it wasn't, uh, I think it's much more prevalent, at least in our community now than it was back in 94. Right. I mean, it just wasn't on my radar screen. It wasn't, you know, but interestingly enough, my, uh, the La Leche League leader of the group that I attended and, and eventually um, started co-leading with um she had had her second child at home so it was on her radar screen and she encouraged me she said it's great you know do it and um anyway long story short uh, my friend introduced me to two home birth midwives uh gave me the numbers of two home birth midwives i met one because when i met that first one i knew like this was the woman that was going to help me and i and the thing that's so striking is that number one she was a black woman she was Jamaican woman um, and she was very what would we call a roots woman like she was like the quintessential quintessential black midwife I mean she has a long dreadlock she's beautiful these big beautiful eyes she knows studies herbology and all those things and I was just like wow and then on top of it she had her first child you know when I asked her her birth history she said oh I had my first child in the hospital and then my second I just delivered at home you know by myself in my bathtub and I thought like I had never heard of anything like that before. And I just, I, to me, I was like, well, if you can do that, you can certainly help me have a baby. I mean, you caught your own baby. So I signed on and, and uh, with her, um, with the um, support of my partner at the time who actually wanted me to have another C-section because he said, hey, you know, everything worked out fine the first time. Let's just do another one. And I said, I don't want that. But when he met this woman, he's also of Caribbean, he was of Caribbean descent and he saw he, he connected with her and he kind of, he trusted her. What she didn't want us to know about her was that she was very well educated in wonderful schools. She was undergraduate of Yale and she got her graduate, uh, CNM graduate of midwifery studies at Columbia. And she actually didn't want us to know that because she didn't want us to get caught up in, in, you know, this, this intellectual or this, like the student, um, you know, side of her, well-educated, quote-unquote, side of her. She really wanted to be seen as someone who was more intuitive, that was more of a, um, a traditional type of a midwife, although she had excellent schooling. So that appealed to my partner, who had also gone to Ivy League schools, and, and we were in. And here I was on my path to having a home birth, and everything was wonderful. I would do home visits at her home, on her sofa, you know, she would check me out, or she would come to my house, and uh, we even worked out an arrangement where we paid her some cash. And then uh, she even bartered with me a little bit. And um, so, I, you know, it was just like a great arrangement. However, that to, all that to say, towards the end of my pregnancy, a couple of my husband's friends from school came to town. And they were both doctors. The husband is a black doctor, ophthalmologist. The wife is an OB. And she said, you know, where are you having this baby? And I said, oh, I'm having a baby at home. And she said to me, you know, <laughs> you're crazy. You're at, are you crazy? That's the most horrible thing. She said, that is the most horrible thing I have ever heard. And so here I am, seven and a half months pregnant. That's really, really good active listening <laughs> by the, uh, by the uh, OBGYN. <laughs> Right. You, unsolicited advice is the nemesis of our whole of our That whole is the right. most horrible thing I've ever heard. That is exact. I will never forget those words. And suddenly all this positivity and all this great stuff I'm feeling about having this home birth were really went out the window. I mean, I just immediately went into fear mode. And funny enough, her husband, the eye doctor, um, pulled me aside later on that evening and said, you know, hey, 
I wouldn't worry about so much what my wife is saying. He's like, she works in a very high risk practice with very um, unhealthy women. She's been sued several times. She's just, she's just, I would, he was basically like, don't listen to her. Right. Um, the risks of you having a rupture, which is probably what she's concerned about since you had a prior cesarean are very low. And he's like, go on and have your home birth. So although that felt very, reassuring i kept thinking he's an eye doctor yeah but 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 you know and i know that what this what what he's telling is true and what she was doing was she's projecting her fear onto you which is a classic thing that 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 obstetricians do um to their own clients uh not even to their friends or 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 relatives they do it every day in the office when they're nervous about something they 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 vomit that up onto the I have a I have client. a client right now, potential client. Um, and I say she's potential because she's I, she's actually not my client. She's coming in to interview my the preceptor, the midwife that is I'm training under. And she says, Hey, I know that I'm a home birth person. I, I just feel it. I just and I've been but I still been going to see my OB. I've been friends I've been going to this OB since I was sixteen years old and, and my OB, she is amazing. I mean, I went in there and I told her that I wanted to have a home birth and she was so supportive and I said, Well, what did she say? And she said, Well, she said, If you want to have a home birth, you know, I support you. I think you're crazy. But I support you. And it was no surprise to me that this woman was very conflicted about whether or not she should have a home birth. You know, she was getting this mixed message. I mean, like a part of her thought that that was a supportive message from her <laughs> OB. But the but I said, you know, you've known this woman since you were 16 years old. You've been getting your care from her. Do you think that her saying that I think it's crazy has any influence upon you on the decision that you're going to make, whether or not you want to birth at home. And basically the woman said, you know, God bless her. She said, I really didn't think about it that way, but I really feel that absolutely that makes a, a difference. It makes a huge difference. I mean, I, I have clients, I see clients every day that I'm in the office and I hear stories uh, about what's been said to them either in this pregnancy or previous pregnancies. And it really makes it, sometimes it really makes me want to cry. And one of the problems that I have is when they're told something by a physician or a or they're referred to a maternal fetal medicine specialist and they're evaluated and then they make a recommendation which sounds quite frightening like well you know the blood flow here was a little bit low and (laughs) we need to start testing your baby twice a week and i want to ultrasound you every week and we're going to induce your baby probably at 38 weeks and all that sort of part of me part of me says well there's probably a small chance that what he's saying is true but I've heard them cry wolf so many times that when a woman comes to me with that sort of story, my first impression is to think that, that it's bullshit. (laughs) And, um, and so I always tell these people to get an independent second opinion. And I have a couple of maternal fetal medicine specialists and I also do my own scans and my own Doppler flow studies and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I can double check that for them. Of course I have my bias. I try to send, you know, I, I want to make sure that try to make it clear to my clients that, that I'm trying to give you informed consent on both sides of the story, but obviously I have a bias. So maybe you could go see this person who, who right. is not going to be delivering you, right. is not going to be making money off of you, right. other than the one, ki- one time they see you. Right. So go see them and see if they tell you the same thing. As it just happened to me this week where uh, I have a set of twins and the babies are, oh, 34 weeks and, and uh, the, um, they're, they're in the, you know, the 10th percentile or or a small, smaller size, maybe the abdomens are the third or fourth percentile, which is small, but they're twins, right. and they're very symmetric and concordant right. in their growth, and the environment around them is fine, right. but 
he noticed something in the blood flow, which I haven't seen the report yet. I'm going to look at the report and maybe get a double check. That he says he wants to check again every week, and he wants her to start having twice weekly NSTs and biophysical profiles. Now, you know, I mean, is it possible that that's necessary? Yes. Is it likely that that's overkill? Yes. Is it is it likely that he's going to get paid for those? Yes. Pretty well for those studies that he's going to do. Yeah. Twice well, he weekly? doesn't make any money. And again, I, I'm not. I don't want to uh, besmirch all. Yes. All these experts that do this, but clearly, it's sort of like the dentist who doesn't find a cavity. Right. You we know, keep not, looking around. Yeah. If you keep picking at it long enough with the pick, you'll find something that you can drill a hole in and fill. <laughs> and it's the same sort of thing here. If you, you might find a little ditzel on the kidney or you might find a little abnormality in the blood flow. But if the baby's environment is fine, most of the time this stuff doesn't mean anything. And, and there's a way to um, express that to a client that right. doesn't give them the fear of God, doesn't put the fear of God in them. But that's sort of not what happens because it's... It's all. It's part of their training, and it's also to their advantage to put the fear of God. Absolutely. And these people, as I said earlier, they tend to be vomiting up their own anxiety, their own fear. And to a maternal fetal medicine specialist, the best fetus is one that's been delivered, <laughs> because they don't have to deal with it anymore. And so there are people that recommend induction and delivery early, right. Because they know, well, you know, if the baby has a little respiratory problem, that's not my problem. But if right. the baby dies in utero, right, I'm totally fucked. Right. Sorry. Exactly. So you That's can okay. say that, by the way. <laughs> we talked about it. Another thing interesting that you should say that because you told this very decent, sto- I mean, this very good story about your thing. One of the things you never have to do on Dr. Sue's podcast is say, to make a long story short. Okay. Okay. <laughs> because you could tell a long story. It's, it's, it's why we have the, it's the beauty of this sort of format. Well, so, I do want to tell you just what happened and, and just kind of finish that story up because it yeah, really Yeah, so make informs, a long story long. It's oh, well, fine. it really informs what how I got onto this path, which is, um, you know, becoming currently becoming well, that a midwife. That was my original question, wasn't it? Right. You know, becoming a midwife. I've done birth work over the years. I've been the doula. I've been postpartum doula. I've done all that stuff and it's lovely and, and hard. And I've been a board certified lactation consultant internationally board certified for, uh, I think I'm going on my 15th year and I've been helping women breastfeed for much longer than that as well. But what, this this was such a pivotal moment in my own history because I was scared when I got that vomit from the um, OB friend of ours that said, you know, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly was trying to get out of my, my home birth, okay? Because remember, my history was I had a cesarean and now I was going to try a home birth after cesarean at home, you know, at home, not in the hospital, which was a little, you know, outside the box, or maybe a lot outside the box. I mean, it was 1994 at the time. Um, and I was being told I was crazy by a medical professional. So I started backtracking. I started trying to get out of my home birth. And my midwife would call and she'd say, hey, aren't we supposed to have, let's have our next appointment. And I'd be like, well, uh, I can't come in now. I, I, I actually, I don't think I can make any more appointments. And she was like, you know what, what? happened well, were you did you switch to start seeing an ob or you were seeing nobody i wasn't see. i was just i just kind of was right. in limbo for a minute i was just kind of thinking wow i'm crazy um, what am i doing this is crazy i'm gonna oh my goodness this so i i was in fear i was in fear mode so i just kind of just didn't deal with anything until my midwife called me like it's time for another appointment and i tried to get out of it and so she said to me you know what happened you know her active listening obviously was in place she said you know I can tell something's changed so what happened and I and then I told her and and I told her the story and then she said oh I understand she says um so you're really concerned about what would happen if there was an emergency and I said absolutely yeah what would happen and she said well and and she started to explain to me that you know well you're very close to 
XYZ hospital. If there was a complication, we would go there. It would take us six minutes to get there. Um, if you needed an uh, operation, you'd probably go straight to the operating room, whereas some women who might be in the hospital already waiting for a cesarean would, would, would actually have to wait. Where we, we would, You would probably go straight in. And not to mention, um, by the way, emergencies don't typically just happen like that. I mean, it's, and I think that's the big fear that a lot of people have when we talk about birth complications is that the sudden emergency happens and like we're going to be rushing off to the hospital like everyone sees in TV and movies. She said, that's not typically how it happens. It's actually quite rare for an emergency to just crop up out of the blue like that. And actually what happens is we're monitoring you and and I'm monitoring you and I'm looking for the, the normalcy. I'm looking at patterns and I'm looking at what's going on in your labor. And if there are things that are starting to happen that are taking you out of the range of normal you know I'm paying attention to that and if there's a collective collection of of symptoms that are taking you out of the range of normal then we start thinking about going to the hospital then we know maybe something is not going normally and we can do something about it and we have time we have time um and and you know but it's not something typically that's just like oops there we go we got a major emergency and and now we're rushing yeah the other thing that she probably didn't say to you because she probably didn't have any data on that is that is that the chance of if you wanted a VBAC badly, the chance of you having a successful VBAC is going to be much higher if you stayed out of the hospital than in the hospital simply by the model by which you're cared for in the hospital. You're treated as if your uh, package ready to explode and you're, you know, you're immobilized and you're anesthetized and you're starved and you're interrupted constantly and at home you can labor as nature intended. Exactly. And I will tell you that, that from my, again, digressing, we'll finish the story, but a digressing, um, my statistics, again, not reaching statistical significance yet because it's just me, but you know, I've done over, I think 50, probably 50 VBACs outside of the hospital with a success rate of 91%, Excellent. which is really high. And again, I attribute that. And some of them have been VBAC after two and three C-sections. Yes, yes. And, and I attribute that to the fact that we let them labor as nature intended. And, you know, so when you talk about the risk of VBAC, you also have to talk about the success of VBAC. And the success of VBAC is going to, you need an environment where you feel safe and nurtured. And the hospital just often doesn't do that for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and there would have been, I mean, this was 1994 after all. So there's been a lot of improvements, at least in the hospital births that I do attend today. I see a lot of changes that are happening. I mean, slowly, slowly. I mean, not enough as far as I'm concerned, but I mean, it, it would have been a whole lot of fighting. There, People weren't as much talking about walking around and, and trying to, you know, keep yourself, uh, you know, ambulatory during the labor process in a hospital and, and things such of that nature. And so um, the truth of the matter is after she talked to me and kind of talked me down and explained everything to me, um, I felt much more comfortable. But in the back of my mind, I was still like thinking, you know, am I doing something dangerous? Um, but I just kept on being pregnant and I kept seeing my midwife and I kept being reassured that everything was fine. And, um, and, and all of a sudden one day I went into labor and <laughs> let's just say like six hours later I had a baby. It was like, it, it came out of my vagina in my house with my partner and the midwife and, and everything was fine. And so it was kind of amazing because literally up to that point, I was just kind of like, not sure until labor happened and I had a baby. So um, that, it, you know, led me to seeing like this whole other way. Just think of, how, yeah, think how different your life is because, uh, 
because you didn't listen to the uh, the physician and you actually were able to to do this. It's it, it's really exciting. Let me ask a question about the midwife that you use. Was she did she work with a team or was she? She actually of, did not work with the team. Right, you know, the, I've I've seen that like uh, the New York yeah. midwives, like in Business of Being Born, Kara. Yeah, she she worked by herself too. Yet in Los Angeles here, we're always like a team, and and uh, you know I find that to be better. For I many like, reasons, yes. but partly just the camaraderie of having somebody else to bounce stuff off of. Well, uh, you know, interestingly enough, with, with my that delivery, she did not. It was not a. She did not have a team with her. It was just her. It was very very simple. But um, I did have my third baby, of, of course, vaginally at home with her, and she did have some students that she was working with, so she had more of a team. But I'll tell you that she didn't. She didn't bring oxygen. She didn't bring she I don't even know what she brought honestly. She just she was very well, minimalistic. Yeah, well, what's interesting about the you should say about oxygens. It's too I mean I I started home birthing 6 years ago. My oxygen tank has expired. <laughs> and you know I barely I've, you know the only oxygen I've ever used is to turn it on and test it and turn it off after <laughs> the birth. I've never used oxygen because most of the time you know, first of all, for a, a, we don't see fetal distress like you do when you're uh, epiduralizing and pitting mm-hmm. people to distress. And and also, I mean, babies, if you're giving oxygen, it's probably more to treat you than, right. it, is, than it is to treat the, the mother ba- or the baby. I mean, right. rarely, I mean, uh, yes, mothers can get short of breath and maybe giving them oxygen might help. I've never had that happen right. because I've been able, I've had good, be able to calm them down and speak to them right. when they're hyperventilating, that sort of thing. Right. But babies, fetal hemoglobin, really, you can't really oversaturate it. Um, with by giving more oxygen, you really can't change the partial pressure of oxygen. So I can understand that. And I know that a lot of traditional midwives, they don't bring Pitocin, they don't bring antibiotics, they don't bring stuff. Now those things are more and more changing. And we're even getting midwives now that are thinking about using nitrous oxide and other things, which is another talk for another day. Right. But it's not surprising to me that, that she didn't bring oxygen. For you it is, because in your training, I, in your yes. midwifery school, and also right. with you're working with your uh, preceptor, Heather. Right. Stuff like that. And me, me too. I, we always have oxygen, and we always open we it up. We have a lot of stuff. We but bring now a ton even of res- stuff. Now we, now we used to do resuscitations of babies with oxygen, but now, of course, the NRP tells you that you don't use oxygen. Right. You just use room air use for room, a baby. Room air, right. yeah. So, you know... Um, so th- that was a really powerful experience, um, and it was uh, definitely empowering, and I, I could see myself eventually helping other women. That's how I kind of got into this. But um, I think I really received that calling that they talk about, that calling to become a midwife. That's, this is why they call it a calling, because we abuse our bodies, you know, catching babies the way moms need their babies to be caught. So that might mean that we're laying on the floor, we're scratched down in odd positions oh. for hours where we often get soaked with you know water from the birth tub we um yeah. have well, you're being kind by calling it water <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. we are uh called to birth at oh, you, every you, odd you, you hour leave your kids you, you leave your, your ki- spouse whole, you leave your thing. your office full of clients the you, whole thing right but i think so that's why we i think it's called a calling because this is not something you would actually choose for yourself i don't think this is something that you're like looking at everything and everything you're gonna have to sacrifice everything that your family's gonna have to sacrifice for you to do this I think a lot of people will just say, hell no, I'm not doing that. Well, I know. We have a friend, we have a mutual friend of ours who always talks about herself and she says, well, I knew I was going to be a midwife from when I was a little kid because my grandma was a midwife, my aunt was a midwife, you know what I'm right. talking about. Yes. Yeah, my mom was a midwife and so she knew that she wanted to be a midwife, but most of us, right. And certainly, I didn't, you know, you look at me, I mean, when I was in high school or college, did I even know I wanted to go to medical school? No. And then when I went to medical school, did I think I was going to pick OBGYN as my residency? And then when I finished my residency, did I, and I was a hospital-based physician, and I thought I was the sharpest pack <laughs> in the drawer. Uh, 
uh, did I ever think that I would be backing midwives? No. Did I ever think right. that I would then start to do home birthing? No. Right. Right. Um, but I tell you that I'm, you know, like you, I mean, it is a calling and it is a joy. And even though the hours suck and the hours are horrible and, um, you know, I don't, I don't feel the pressures that I used to feel in the hospital where I had big brother looking over my shoulder all the exactly. time to be, you know, politically correct or follow or the protocol, follow the protocol said. or mm-hmm. worry about liability issues or documentation. I mean, you know, I used to learn, I used to think that writing notes, well, I was taught that writing notes and charts was so that if you were to drop dead or you were to go off shift that someone else could follow up with the care. So you know, I, I, my notes are basically for myself. So I, I, my charting is probably substandard, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I know what I, I, I write what's important. Right. I don't write stuff just to fill in the chart. Exactly. I, you know, I'm one of the few people that probably in our profession, young people that don't use computerized records, mm-hmm. you know, all the new guys coming in, all the new yeah. midwives coming in, they're all using, switching sure. over to private practice or what's the other one called? Uh, mobile midwife. Mobile midwife, Right. right? And, you know, there's nothing wrong with them, but they do have little boxes and stuff that you have to fill in that probably have no value. Yeah. And I see that the students sometimes when I'm at a birth are, are putting in data when they should be like, yeah, pay, looking at the mother, yeah. you know, I, I never remember my midwife looking at other things or taking notes or, you know, it wasn't like that. But, but well, all, the, all that to say, you know, I was gonna say, well, so we got through that part, we're going to run out of time yes. today. So we're going to have to do another, another part where we talk a little bit more about what it's like being a midwifery student, because I really... You know, I want people in the, in other parts of the world or even other yes. parts of the states to experience what you went through, and because uh, you have lots of wisdom, I, I think you Thank can. You. To my listeners, I think you can tell how eloquent uh, Kimmy is and how much fun it's going to be uh, having her on the podcast. And you know, she can uh, t- she can tell a yarn and she can tell a joke. <laughs> well, I just want to say it was just really quickly that one of the things that's really important to me as a woman of color is also reclaiming a midwifery tradition that has existed uh, for women of color in this country for 400 years and also extends back to um, the other countries that we are all we were all brought from. And it is really important to me that that um, you know, there's another reason why I'm very much um, loving this journey because I do really feel like I can be of service and be um, uh, a face that that when women, other women of color can look at me and say, OK, like I think kind of sort of she's going to get me like I'm probably not going to have to explain myself to her and I can feel safe with her. And so there, there's a lot to that, too. And we can talk about that, too. Yeah, and I agree. Podcast. I agree. As, as, as a man of no color. <laughs> <laughs> I support. You're a little I support, pink around the edges. I support exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I'm a little sunburned, maybe, but yeah. but that's it. Uh, so you, know, you don't have that problem. I, I I have that problem. No, no, I don't have that. <laughs> Funny problem. how that works. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so this has been podcast number 94. We've heard learned a lot about uh, Kimmy Durden, and mm-hmm. if you want to find her, you can find her at this really original website called KimberlyDurden.com. Is it Kimberly Durden or Kim Durden? Kimberly. KimberlyDurden.com. Kimberly and if you want to email me a comments about Kimberly, uh, you can email me at ask dr stew at gmail.com again we hope you listen to us on itunes uh, tell a friend share us on facebook uh, we really appreciate you listening uh, we're going to have some interesting podcasts coming up we're zeroing in on uh, number 100 and i can't wait for that so thanks again for listening to dr stew's podcast number 94 all right all right